Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, I bring you Hercule Poirot, episode titled The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, where a woman is found dead shortly after confessing to her friend that she is being blackmailed. The police concluded it was suicide, but the case takes a much darker turn when the same friend is found murdered in his own study. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening. present Agatha Christie's The Murder of Roger Ackroyd with John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and John Woodvine as Dr. Shepard, the storyteller. Mrs. Ferrers died on the night of the 16th to the 17th of September, a Thursday. I was sent for at 8 o'clock on the morning of Friday the 17th. There was nothing I could do. She had been dead some hours. It was just a few minutes after nine when I reached home once more. Is that you, James? What are you doing out there? Just hanging up my overcoat. Why don't you come and get your breakfast? Just coming. You've had an early call? Yes, King's Paddock, Mrs. Ferrows. I know. How did you know? The milkman told me. Well? Bad business. Nothing to be done. What did she die of? Heart failure? She died of an overdose of veronal. She's been taking it lately for sleeplessness. Must have taken too much. Nonsense. She took it on purpose. Now, why on earth should Mrs. Ferrers wish to commit suicide? A widow, still fairly young, very well off, and nothing to do but enjoy life. Now, what possible reason could Remorse. she... Remorse. Remorse? Yes. You're always so preoccupied, tinkering about your electric gadgets. You don't notice what's going on under your nose. You never would believe me when I told you she poisoned her husband. I'm more than ever convinced of it now. She's been haunted by what she did. Ten to one, she's left a letter confessing everything. She didn't leave a letter of any kind. You'd thought she'd have left something for Roger Ackroyd. After all, they were practically man and wife. Caroline. And who could blame them? I mean, after all, Mrs. Ackroyd died of drink. And Mrs. Ferris's husband was an alcoholic. If his sister-in-law hadn't descended on him from Canada, they'd have been married by now. Now, where are you going? I'm going down to the village, Caroline. I've got better things to do than sit around here listening to gossip. Shepard! Just the man I wanted to get hold of. This is a terrible business. Uh, You've heard them. I'm very sorry, Ackroyd. It's worse than you know. Look here, I've got to talk to you. Can you come back with me now? Hardly. I've got three patients to see, and I must be back by 12 to see to my surgery. Uh, Then, uh, dine with me tonight. My sister-in-law will be there, and Flora. Oh, and um, Hector Blunt's coming along. But I'll think of some excuse to get away from them. I must talk to you. I went home thoughtful, to find several patients waiting in the surgery. I had dismissed the last of them, as I thought, when I perceived one more patient, Ackroyd's housekeeper, Miss Russell. Good morning, Doctor. I should be much obliged if you'd look at my knee. I took a look, but I was very little wiser when I had done so. I prescribed some liniment. But she seemed inclined to linger. 
not that I believe that anything will do me much good. I, I don't believe in all these drugs. Drugs do a lot of harm. Look at the cocaine habit. Um, uh, suppose you are a slave of the drug habit. Is there any cure? I answered her as best I could, but for the life of me I couldn't understand what she was getting at. Then she asked me whether there were any poisons so rare that they baffled detection. I wondered whether in some roundabout way she was trying to question me about Mrs. Ferrers. I was quite relieved when Caroline sounded the gong for lunch. What's the trouble with Ralph Payton? There isn't any. Then why is he staying at the Three Boars instead of Fernley Park with his foster father? Ackroyd didn't mention him. He arrived at the Three Boars yesterday morning and he's still there. Last night he was out with a girl. One of the barmaids? No, that's just it. He went out to meet her. I don't know who she is, but I can guess. Flora Ackroyd. Mm. But why not see her at Fernley? Secretly engaged. Old Ackroyd won't hear of it, and they have to meet this way. And there's another thing. I was walking through the wood this morning when I heard voices. Did you? I did. One of them was Ralph's. And do you know what he said? I can't imagine. He was talking to a girl. I didn't manage to see who it was. How deeply frustrating for you. And he said it was on the cards that the old man, I suppose he meant Ackroyd, was likely to cut him off without a shilling. And he said he needed the money and didn't want the will to be altered. What do you make of that? Good Lord. Hmm? What is it? An enormous vegetable marrow has just landed on the lawn. Hmm. It must have come over the garden wall. Our new neighbour, I suppose. Oh, Mr. Porrett. The man you say looks like a retired hairdresser. I'd better go and have a word with him. A thousand pardons, monsieur. I suddenly became impatient with the marrows. I seized the biggest and hurled him over the wall. Well, I sincerely hope oh, that no, no, doesn't no, mean... No, 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 do not disquiet yourself. It is not uh, with me a habit. But uh, can you figure to yourself, monsieur, that a man may work towards leading at last a life of leisure, and then, when he has attained it, he yearns for the old busy days and the old occupations he thought himself so glad to leave? Oh, yes, I understand it well enough. You know, a year ago, I came into a legacy enough to enable me to realize a dream. I've always wanted to travel, to see the world. Oh, that was a year ago, and I'm still here. Ah, but you can still realize that dream whenever you choose. No longer, alas. I was foolish, and worse than foolish. Greedy. Oh, you speculated. Mm, an Australian gold mine. And now? I have nothing. Well, well. Mm. I would be very pleased if you would present that marrow to your sister. Oh, thank you. Um, by the way, I, I should like to ask you a question. You doubtless know everyone in this uh, tiny village. Who is the young man with the very dark hair and eyes and the handsome face? Well, that must be Ralph Payton, the adopted son of Mr. Ackroyd. Of course, I should have guessed. You know Mr. Ackroyd? Mr. Ackroyd knew me in London uh, when I was at work there. Oh, I have asked him to say nothing of my profession down here. Indeed. And so... Ralph Peton is going to marry Mr. Ackroyd's niece, the charming Miss Flora. Who told you so? Mr. Ackroyd. About a week ago. But there is something about that young man I do not understand. Hello, Sarah. Oh, hello. Uh, do you know where I can find Mr. Peyton? Oh, he's just... Shepard, glad to see you. One person I am glad to see in this infernal place. What's the place been doing to you? It's a long story. 
Things haven't been going very well with me, Doctor. Not to mince matters, I'm in the devil of a mess. In fact, I haven't the least idea what to do next. What's the matter? It's my confounded stepfather. What's he done? It isn't what he's done yet, but what he's likely to do. I'm fairly up against it this time. It was just a few minutes before half-past seven when I reached Fernley Park. The night was such a fine one that I had preferred to come on foot. Parker, the butler, relieved me of my overcoat and then withdrew. Raymond, Ackroyd's secretary, was passing with a handful of papers. Good evening, Doctor. Coming to dine or is this a professional call? Good evening, Raymond. I brought the black bag just in case. I'm expecting a summons to a confinement. Why don't you go into the drawing room? You know the way. I must take these papers to Mr. Ackroyd. I'll tell him you're here. Just as I was turning the handle of the door into the drawing room, I noticed a sound from within. The shutting of a window, I took it to be. Oh, I was just coming out. Miss Russell, I'm afraid I'm a few minutes early. I don't think so. It's after half past seven. I must be going now. They'll all be down in a moment. I only came in here to see that the flowers were all right. My eye was caught by what I believe is called a silver table, the lid of which lifts, and through the glass of which you can see the contents. There were one or two pieces of old silver, a baby shoe that was said to have belonged to King Charles I, and some Chinese jade figures. Wanting to examine one of these more closely, I lifted the lid. It slipped through my fingers and fell. And that was the sound which I had heard. Admiring the family curios, Doctor. Flora, how lovely you look. I don't believe Charles I ever wore that nasty little thing at all. But you haven't congratulated me yet, haven't you heard? Well, I have heard rumours. I'm going to marry Ralph. Uncle is very pleased. It keeps me in the family, you see. Excuse me, uh, Miss Flora, Doctor, dinner is served. Dinner was not a cheerful affair. Ackroyd was visibly preoccupied. His sister-in-law gushed in an ice-cold way. Hector Blunt looked as if he'd rather be out on the felt shooting big game. And Flora was unusually silent. When the meal was over, Ackroyd slipped his arm through mine and led me off to his study. Bring your bag with you. Then they'll think it's a professional consultation. Make sure the window's closed, will you? And uh, put the latch across. Closed and latched. Now, what on earth's the matter? Come here and sit down. No one can hear us, can they? No, the door's closed. What's the trouble? Shepherd, you attended Ashley Ferrers in his last illness, didn't you? Yes, I did. Did it ever enter your head that he might have been poisoned? I'll tell you the truth. At the time, I had no suspicions whatever, but since... Well, it was mere idle talk of my sister's that first put the idea into my head. He was poisoned. Who by? His wife. How do you know that? She told me so herself. When? Yesterday. Oh, my God, yesterday. It seems ten years ago. I want your advice, Shepherd, in absolute confidence, of course. I can't carry the weight of all this by myself. Why don't you tell me the whole story? Now, how did Mrs. Ferrers come to make this confession to you? Three months ago, I asked her to marry me, and she refused. I asked her again and she consented, but wouldn't allow me to make the engagement public until her year of mourning was up. Yesterday I called upon her to remind her that it was a year and three weeks since her husband's death. And without the least warning she broke down, completely. 
She told me everything, her hatred of her brute of a husband, her growing love for me and the, the dreadful means she had taken. Poison. Oh, my God. I'm very sorry. It must have been terrible for you. It seems that there is one person who has known all along, who has been blackmailing her for huge sums. It was the strain of that which drove her nearly mad. Who was the man? She wouldn't tell me his name. She asked me for 24 hours, made me promise to do nothing until the end of that time. She told me that I would hear from her. It never entered my head what she meant to do. Suicide. But the responsibility for her death doesn't lie at your door. The question is, what am I to do now? How am I to get hold of that scoundrel who drove her to her death as surely as if he'd killed her? Is he to go scot-free? You mean you want to hunt him down? I'm convinced that by deliberately choosing death, she wanted the whole thing to come out. If only to be revenged on the man who drove her to desperation. Yes? Who is it? The evening post, sir. Ah, yes, thank you, Parker. This is her writing, Shepard. She must have gone out and posted it last night, just before she... Read it. My dear, my very dear Roger, a life calls for a life. Oh, Shepard, forgive me, but I must read this alone. It was meant for my eyes and my eyes only. At least read it through while I'm here. No, I'd rather wait. Well, at least read the name of the man. I'm sorry, Shepherd. no. And so I left him there, with the letter still unread. I hesitated with my hand on the door handle, looking back and wondering if there was anything I had left undone. I told Parker that his master did not wish to be disturbed and stepped out into the night. The clock of the village church was striking nine as I passed through the lodge gates. Uh, is this the way to Fernley Park, sir? Oh, these are the lodge gates. Oh, thank you, sir. I'm a stranger in these parts, you see. Ten minutes later, I was at home once more. Oh, that'll be Mrs. Bates. The baby might at least have waited till the morning. Ah, oh, no peace for the wicked. Hmm? Yeah? What did you say? Hmm? What? Uh, certainly, I'll come at once. What is it, James? That was Parker telephoning from Fernley. They've just found Roger Ackroyd. Murdered. Where is Dr. Shepard? Where is he? Uh, I beg your pardon, sir? Mr. Ackroyd, don't stand there staring at me, man. Have you notified the police? The police, sir? What's the matter with you, Parker? You said your master had been murdered. The master murdered? That's impossible. Didn't you telephone me not five minutes ago and tell me that Mr. Ackroyd had been found murdered? No, indeed, sir. I wouldn't dream of doing such a thing. You mean to say that this is all a hoax? That there's nothing the matter with Mr. Ackroyd? Where is he? He's still in the study, I fancy, sir. Uh, the ladies have gone to bed and Major Blunt and Mr. Raymond are in the billiard room. I think I'll just look in and see him for a minute. I know he didn't want to be disturbed again, but this practical joke has made me uneasy. Quite so, sir, yes. Well, if you don't object to my accompanying you as far as the door... Not at all. Come along. Ackroyd! Ackroyd! The door's locked. Ackroyd! Ackroyd! It's Shepard! Let me in! 
Look here, Parker. I'm going to break the door down. Or rather, we are. Oh, now, now I'll right. take responsibility. Oh, well, if you say so, sir, yes. Oh, my God. There's a dagger in the back of his neck. Don't touch it. You must go at once to the telephone and ring up the police station. Tell them what has happened. A bad business, Doctor. No possibility of accident or suicide? None whatever. You say you had a telephone message from the butler? A message I never sent. I've not been near the telephone the whole evening. Very odd, that. Did it sound like Parker's voice, Doctor? Well, I can't say I noticed. I took it for granted, you see. And how long do you think he's been dead? Half an hour at least, perhaps longer. And the door was locked on the inside. What about the window? I closed and bolted it earlier this evening, at Mr. Ackroyd's request. Well, it's open now, anyway. This is the way he went, all right, and got in. See the footmarks? Rubber studs in the shoes, plain as a pike staff. Has anyone seen any suspicious-looking strangers hanging about? Mr. Raymond, have you? No. As a matter of fact, I have. I met a man this evening, just as I was turning out of the gates. He asked me the way to Fernley Park. And what time would that be? Just nine o'clock. I heard the church clock. And did he come here, Parker? Uh, no, sir, no. Uh, no one's been to the house at all this evening. Except through the window. When was Mr. Ackroyd last seen alive? Oh, probably by me, when I left at around ten minutes to nine. He told me he didn't wish to be disturbed, and I repeated the order to Parker. It just so, sir, yes. Mr. Ackroyd was certainly alive at half past nine, for I heard his voice in here talking. Uh, who was he talking to, Mr. Raymond? At the time, I took it that it was Dr. Shepherd who was with him, but now it appears that the doctor had already left. You didn't happen to catch any of the conversation, did you? I did catch just a fragment... And it struck me as distinctly odd. He said something like, uh, The calls on my purse have been so frequent of late that I feel it is impossible for me to accede to your request. A demand for money. It could be that we have here a very important clue. Still, one thing's clear. Mr. Ackroyd was alive and well at 9.30. If you'll excuse me, sir, uh, Miss Flora saw him after that. Miss Flora? Yes, sir, yes, about a quarter to ten, that would be. I was bringing a tray with whiskey and soda when Miss Flora, who was just coming out of this room, you see, she stopped me and she said her uncle didn't want to be disturbed. I must see Miss Ackroyd at once, but I don't want to worry her about the murder just yet. Uh, ask her to come to the billiard room, would you? I don't understand. What has happened? I mean, what do you want me to tell you? It's just this, Miss Ackroyd. Parker says you came out of your uncle's study at about a quarter to ten. Is that right? Quite right. I'd been to say goodnight to him. Uh, do you mind telling us what passed between you and your uncle? I went in to say goodnight and kissed him. And he said something about my frock looking nice. And, and then he told me to run away as he was busy. But, but why are you asking me these questions? What's happened? It's bad news, I'm afraid, my dear. Your uncle... Yes? This is going to be a shock for you. Your uncle is dead. When? Very soon after you left him, I'm afraid. Oh. Uh, catch her, Doctor. She's going to faint. How is the young lady, Doctor? Coming round nicely. Uh, Mrs. Ackroyd's with her. Mrs. Ackroyd? Uh, her mother. Ackroyd's sister-in-law. Ah, yes. Now, take a look at the murder weapon, Doctor. Something of a curio, I should think. Mm, the edge is... Razor sharp. 
A child could drive that into a man. Where did it come from, I wonder? I gave it to him. Uh, did you? And who are you, sir? This is Major Blunt, an old friend of Mr. Ackroyd's. Uh, you identify the dagger positively, Major Blunt? Absolutely. No doubt about it, whatever. I bought it in Tunis. I knew it was the kind of thing he would like. And where was this curio usually kept? In the silver table in the drawing room. Good Lord. Yes, Doctor? It's probably of no importance. But when I arrived for dinner, I heard the lid of the silver table being shut down in the drawing room. How did you know it was the silver table lid? I made a long, tedious explanation to the inspector, who then took it into his head to take the fingerprints of Raymond and Parker and Major Blunt and myself. And that concluded the night's proceedings. In the morning, I hurried unforgivably over my round, and I returned to find Caroline in a state of great excitement. Flora Ackroyd had come to see me. Dr. Shepherd, I have come to ask you to help me. Of course he'll help you, my dear. What can I do for you? I want you to come to the larches with me. The larches? It's, uh, it's only next door. You see that funny little man? Yes. You know who he is, don't you? We fancied he might be a retired hairdresser. <laughs> a hairdresser? He's Hercule Poirot, the private detective. He's supposed to have been one of the greatest criminal investigators in Europe. So that's who he is. Why do you want to go and see him? To get him to investigate this murder, of course. Oh, Ralph may have done foolish things in the past, but he wouldn't murder anyone. What has Ralph got to do with it? Oh, Flora, you must believe me. I never thought it of him. Well, then why did you go to the Three Boars last night, on your way home, after Uncle's body was found? How did you know about that? I went there this morning. I heard from the servants that Ralph was staying there. You had no idea that he was in King's Abbot? No. I was astounded. I went there and asked for him. They told me what I suppose they told you last night, that he went out at about nine o'clock yesterday evening and never came back. And that's why you want to go to Hercule Poirot. Now, isn't it better to leave things as they are? The police don't suspect Ralph in the least. But that's just it. They do suspect him. A man from Cranchester turned up this morning. Inspector Raglan, a horrid, weasley little man. I found he'd been to the Three Boars this morning before me. Oh, please let us go to this Monsieur Poirot. But uh, what is it that you wish me to accomplish, mademoiselle? I want you to find the murderer. I see. But the police will do that, will they not? They might make a mistake. I want the truth. All the truth? All the truth. Then I accept. And I hope you will not regret those words. Now, tell me all the circumstances. Dr. Shepherd had better tell you. He knows more than I do. I told Poirot the facts as I saw them, and then took him off to meet the officer in charge of the case. Inspector Raglin, Monsieur. We've no need for amateurs to come butting in. Ah, it is true that I have retired from the world. I never intended to take up a case again. Above all things, I have a horror of publicity. So I must beg that in the case of my being able to contribute something to the solution of the mystery, my name may not be mentioned. Well, of course, I've heard you've had some very remarkable successes. I have had much experience, and I admire enormously your English police. If you would permit me to assist you, I would be honoured and flattered. Then I'd better tell you about the latest development, Mr. Perrault. Uh, 
We've been able to fingerprint all those present in the house at the time of the murder, and none of their prints correspond to what we found on the murder weapon. And those of Captain Ralph Peton? I see you don't let the grass grow under your feet, Mr. Poirot. <laughs> It'll be a pleasure to work with you, I'm sure. We're going to take that young gentleman's fingerprints as soon as we can lay hands upon him. What have you got against Mr. Peyton, Inspector? He went out just on nine o'clock last night. Was seen in the neighbourhood of Fernley Park somewhere about 9.30. Not been seen since. Believed to be in serious money difficulties. I've got a pair of his shoes here. Shoes with rubber studs on them. He had two pairs, almost exactly alike. I'm going up there now to compare them with the footmarks found at the window... Care to come along to the scene of the crime, Mr. Poirot? And uh, this is where the body was found? In this chair, yes. Mm. And this letter you spoke of, uh, where was it uh, when you left the room? Mr. Ackroyd had laid it down on this little table at his right hand. Uh -huh. And apart from the letter being missing, everything was in its place? Yes, I think so. There was a fire in the grate, I see. When you found Mr. Ackroyd... How was the fire? Was it uh, low? I really can't say. Uh, perhaps... Could you ring for the butler, Doctor? Yes, of course. Now, tell me, Monsieur le Doctor, when you broke down the door, was the hilt of the dagger plainly visible from the door? Yes. Both you and Parker could see it at once? Yes. The bell rang, sir. Oh, come in, Parker. This gentleman wants to ask you something. Mm. Uh, when you brought down the door with Dr. Shepherd last night and found your master dead, what was the state of the fire? It had burned very low, sir. It was almost out. Look around you, my good Parker. Is this room exactly as it was then? Uh, the curtains were drawn, sir, and the electric light was on. Anything else? Uh, yes, sir, yes. The chair to the left of the door was drawn out a little more. Mm -hmm. Just, uh, Just show me. Yes. Ah. The chair was facing the door. Yes, sir, yes. Voila, curieux. No one would want to sit in a chair in such a position, I fancy. Now, who pushed it back into place again, I wonder? Did you, my friend? Uh, no, sir. I was too upset with seeing the master. Did you, doctor? Can't help you, I'm afraid. Curious. Well, surely it isn't important. No, it is completely unimportant. That is why it is so interesting. Uh, will that be all, sir? Yes, Parker, Thank for the moment. Yes. Thank you. I wish you'd tell me about your methods, Monsieur Poirot. The point about the fire, for instance. Oh, that was very simple. You leave Mr. Ackroyd at uh, ten minutes to nine, was it not? Yes, exactly, I should say. Now, the window at that time is closed and bolted and the door unlocked. At a quarter past ten, when the body is discovered, the door is locked and the window is open. Who opened it? Well, clearly only Mr. Ackroyd himself could have done so, and for one of two reasons. Either because he was unbearably hot, or because he admitted someone that way. Now, we know from the excellent Parker that the fire was nearly out, so... He must have opened the window to let someone in, someone known to him, since he had previously shown himself uneasy on the subject of that same window. Put like that, it sounds so simple. <laughs> ah, here is the good Inspector Davis. Uh, that telephone call has been traced. It did not come from here. 
It was put through to Dr. Shepherd at 10.15 last night from a public call box at King's Abbott Station. And at 10.23, the night mail leaves for Liverpool. And there's precious little chance of anyone being noticed telephoning at that time of night. But why telephone at all? That's what I find so extraordinary. Seems no rhyme or reason in the thing. Ah, be sure, Inspector, there was a reason. But what reason could it be? When we know that, we shall know everything. This case is very curious and very interesting. Now, you said it was nine o'clock, Dr. Shepard, when you met the stranger outside the gate. Yes, I heard the church clock chime the hour. How long would it take him to reach the house, to uh, reach the window, for instance? Oh, five minutes at the outside. Two or three minutes only, if he took the path at the right of the drive. But to do that, he would have to know the way. That's true. Hmm. We could find out, doubtless, if Mr. Ackroyd had uh, received any strangers during the past week. The secretary, Raymond, could tell you that. Or Parker. Why don't we talk to them both? No, I can't remember anyone. Can you, Parker? Uh, there was the young man who came on Wednesday, sir, from Curtis and Trout, I understood he was. But that's not the kind of stranger that Monsieur Poirot means. Mr. Ackroyd had some idea of purchasing a dictaphone. The firm in question sent down their representative, but nothing came of it. Mr. Ackroyd did not decide to purchase. Oh, well, there is nothing in that, then. Thank you, gentlemen. Good day, Monsieur Poirot. It doesn't look as if this is going to be much of a case, Mr. Poirot. I'm sorry, too. A nice enough fellow gone wrong. Mm, but tell me, how have you been able to pinpoint the murderer so precisely in so short a time. Let me show you my method, Monsieur. The doctor here says that Mr. Ackroyd was dead by ten o'clock at the latest. You stick to that, doctor? Oh, certainly. And Mr. Ackroyd was last seen alive by his niece at a quarter to ten. On this sheet of paper, I have a list of where everyone in the house was in that crucial quarter of an hour. Apart from a couple of maids who I think we can rule out on the grounds of motive, we know exactly where everyone was. Mm, a very complete list. Uh, may I keep it? Of course, Mr. Fleurot. I have a copy. But now we come to the essential point. Mm. The woman at the lodge, Mary Black, was pulling the curtains when she saw Ralph Payton turn in at the gate and go up to the house. She is sure of that. Quite sure. She knows him well by sight. And what time was that? Twenty-five minutes past nine. It all fits in without a flaw. At around 9.30, Mr Raymond hears Mr Ackroyd refusing to give someone some money. Captain Payton leaves as he has entered through the window. He walks along the terrace angry and baffled. He comes to the open drawing room window. While Miss Flora is saying goodnight to her uncle, he steals in and takes the dagger from the silver table. And then he returns to the study. I needn't go into details. He goes straight to the station, rings up from there. Why? It's difficult to say exactly why he did that. But murderers do funny things. Uh, but come along, I'll, I'll show you those footprints. We got these shoes from Peyton's room at the Three Balls. They're not the same pair that actually made these prints, but you can see they're almost exactly the same. But surely a great many people wear shoes with rubber studs in them. That's so, of course. I shouldn't put so much stress on the footmarks if it wasn't for everything else. Mm. A very foolish young man, Captain Ralph Peyton, to leave so much evidence of his presence. 
The cleverest of them makes mistakes sometimes. And now, gentlemen, if you'll excuse me, I'll be getting back to Cranchester to make my report. Good day, Inspector. Au revoir. Um, do you see the little summer house over there, Doctor? Mm -hmm. It arouses my curiosity. If you can spare the time, shall we investigate it together? Oh, it doesn't look as if we're going to find anything interesting in here. Deck chairs, croquet set. Well, perhaps it was not to be expected. But, ah, ah, what is this? What have you found? A scrap of stiff white material. Cambric, a uh, cambric, I think you call it. What do you make of it, my friend? A scrap from a torn handkerchief, hmm? And... What is this? Do you see, Doctor? A goose quill, by the look of it. A goose quill and a fragment of a handkerchief. But remember, a good laundry does not starch a handkerchief. Hmm. Shall we go back to the house? Ah... Uh. Une belle propriété from the house. Who inherits, I wonder? You had not thought of that before, eh? No, I wish I had. I wonder just what you mean by that. <laughs> Simply... Oh, no, 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 no. You would not tell me your real thought. Everyone has something to hide. You believe that? Of course, my friend. But it is not easy to hide things from Hercule Poirot. He has a knack of finding out. But let us walk a little further. The air is pleasant today. England is very beautiful. Oh, and so are English girls. Do you see, my friend, the pretty picture below us? Flora Aykroyd and Major Bond. How charming they look, sitting together by the goldfish pond. Like Peleas and Melisande. But we must interrupt their little idyll, I fear. I must talk with the Major. Flora? Hello. Major? This is uh, Monsieur Hercule Poirot, Hector. Ah. I expect you've heard of him. And I know Major Blunt by reputation from his exploits in Africa. <clears throat> I'm glad that I've encountered you, Monsieur. I am in need of some information that you can give me. Uh, only too glad to be of assistance. When did you last see Mr. Aykroyd alive? The dinner. And you neither saw nor heard anything of him after that? I uh, didn't see him. Heard his voice. Oh, pardon me. What time was that? About half past nine. I was walking up and down smoking in front of the drawing room window. I heard Aykroyd talking in his study. To whom was he talking? I haven't the faintest idea. I only heard Aykroyd's voice. Can you remember what the words were? Uh, I'm afraid I can't. Something quite ordinary and unimportant. Uh, I didn't give it much attention. Oh, I thought I saw a woman disappearing into the bushes. Just a gleam of white, you know. I must have been mistaken. Ah, that is most interesting. Thank you, Major. Uh, it's nearly lunchtime. We'd better be getting back. Oh, you will lunch with us, Monsieur Poirot. Oh, I should like you to meet my mother. 
You'll stay too, won't you, Doctor? I'd be happy to, and I shall be delighted. Oh, we'll see you in a few minutes, then. What hair. The real gold. They will make a pretty pair. Uh, she and the handsome Captain Payton. And there is something gold that glistens in the water. Do you see, Doctor? There, among the weed. What have you found? A wedding ring. And there is something written inside it. From R. March 13th. This is Monsieur Poirot, Mother. I told you about him this morning. Oh, yes, he is to find Ralph, is he not? He is to find out who killed Uncle. Such a dreadful thing to happen. I can't help feeling it must have been an accident of some kind. Roger was so fond of handling queer curios. His hand must have slipped or something. And this is Mr. Hammond, our solicitor. Da, Mr. Hammond, I desire a little information from you. You are acting on behalf of Captain Ralph Payton? Not so. I am acting in the interests of justice. Miss Aykroyd has asked me to investigate the death of her uncle. I take it you will not object to telling me the terms of Roger Aykroyd's will? I have no objection, Monsieur Poirot, but perhaps we should have Mr. Raymond in with us. I'll go and fetch him. The terms of the will are quite simple. After paying small legacies to Miss Russell and Mr. Raymond and certain... Charitable bequests. Now, the charitable bequests, they interest me not. Oh, quite so. The income on £10,000 worth of shares to be paid to Mrs. Cecil Ackroyd during her lifetime, Miss Flora Ackroyd inherits £20,000 outright. The residue, including this property and the shares, to his adopted son, Ralph Payton. Mr. Ackroyd possessed a large fortune? A very large fortune. Captain Payton will be an exceedingly wealthy young man. Now, as to the question of money, Mrs. Ackroyd, have you all you need for the present? Oh, I mean I... ready money. If not, I can arrange to let you have whatever you require. There shouldn't be any problem there. Hmm? Mr. Ackroyd cashed a cheque for £100 yesterday for wages and other expenses due today. Um, at the moment, it is still intact. Oh, where is this money? In his desk? No, uh... He always kept his cash in his bedroom, in an old collar box, to be accurate. Mm. I think we ought to make sure the money is there before I leave. Certainly. I'll take you up there. Inspector Ragland will have the key for the door. He kept his money like that, in an unlocked drawer. Mr. Ackroyd had perfect faith in the honesty of all his servants. Ah, quite so. Here is the money. You will find the hundred intact, Mr. Hammond. Mr. Ackroyd put it in the collar box in my presence last night. A hundred pounds? There is only sixty here. Impossible. <laughs> See for yourself. So, either he paid out that forty pounds sometime last evening, or else it has been stolen. If Mr. Ackroyd paid that money away himself, it may have a bearing on the mystery of the crime. What about the servants? Have you missed anything before, Mrs. Ackroyd? Oh, no. None of them leaving or anything like that? The parlour maid is leaving, I believe. When? 
She gave notice yesterday. Any idea why? No. I have nothing to do with the servants. Miss Russell attends to household matters. Then perhaps Miss Russell will be good enough to arrange for us to have a word with her. We will leave the questioning to Inspector Raglon, my dear doctor. Oh, yes, of course. Ursula Bourne, Inspector. I understand you are leaving, Miss Bourne. Yes, sir. Why is that? I disarranged some papers on Mr. Ackroyd's desk. He was very angry about it and said I had better leave. Were you up in Mr. Ackroyd's bedroom at all last night? Tidying up or anything? No, sir. That is the housemaid's work. I never went near that part of the house. I must tell you, my girl, that a large sum of money is missing from Mr. Ackroyd's room. I know nothing about any money. If, if you think I took it and that is why Mr. Ackroyd dismissed me, you're wrong. I am not accusing you of anything, my girl. Don't flare up, sir. Uh, excuse me. It was uh, yesterday afternoon that Mr. Ackroyd dismissed you. Hmm? How long did the interview last? Uh, I don't know. Twenty minutes? Half an hour? It's something like that. Not longer? Not longer than half an hour, certainly. Thank you, mademoiselle. That'll do, Miss Bourne. Good day, Inspector. Has she been here long? Uh, have you got a copy of her references? Yes, I, I should have it here. Here you are, Inspector. Thank you. Reads all right. Mrs. Richard Folliot, Marby Grange, Marby. Know anything about her? Uh, quite good county people. Thank you, Miss Russell. I think that'll be all for now. Very well. Um, perhaps you would be so kind as to uh, keep me company on the way home, Doctor. Do you really wish to aid me to take part in this investigation? Yes, indeed. Would it be possible for you to go to Marby tomorrow, say? Hmm, tomorrow, Sunday? Yes, I could manage it. What do you want me to do, then? See this Mrs. Folliot, who wrote the reference. Find out all you can about Ursula Bourne. Oh, very well. But I don't much care for the job. Oh, please, help me, Doctor. A man's life may depend on it. My little outing to Marby yielded nothing. Mrs. Folliot looked uncomfortable and ill at ease when I mentioned the name of Ursula Bourne, and would tell me nothing about her beyond the fact that she had worked there for a time and was capable and satisfactory. Whatever the mystery centering round Ursula Bourne might be, I was not going to learn it through Mrs. Folliot. When I arrived home, Caroline had that look of suppressed exultation on her face which I know only too well. Poirot had paid a call on her. It seems he has an insane nephew and is trying to find somewhere local where he can be treated. Why he should have thought Caroline could help him, I cannot imagine. Unfortunately, he managed to worm out of her the conversation she overheard in the wood that night. I fear it will only help Raglan to tighten the noose round Ralph Payton's neck. He looks bad, Mr. Poirot. If only we had Captain Payton's fingerprints... At least we'd know whether they were the ones on the dagger. Monsieur l'inspecteur, beware of the blind... Um, uh, oh, dear, comment dear. Um, the little street that has no end. Oh, you mean it. a blind alley? Ah, that is it. So it may be with those fingerprints. Come now, you've got to admit that those prints were made by someone who was in the house that night. Bien entendu. You have not uh, overlooked anyone? No one. The quick or the dead? The quick... You mean... The dead... 
I am suggesting that the fingerprints on the dagger handle are those of Mr. Ackroyd himself, that the murderer closed his dead victim's hand round the dagger handle. Well, it's an idea. I'll look into it. But don't you be disappointed if nothing comes of it. (laughs) Another time I must be more careful of his amour propre. (laughs) And uh, now, my friend, there is something I would like you to arrange for me. A little family reunion round the table. Ackroyd's sister-in-law, Flora, Major Blunt, Mr. Raymond, and, of course, yourself. It sounds more like a ghastly board meeting, but I'll do my best. In about half an hour? Monsieur, Madame, <clears throat> I have called you together for a special purpose. To begin with, I want to make a special plea to Mademoiselle. To me? Mademoiselle, you are engaged to Captain Ralph Breton. If anyone is in his confidence, you are. Will you not trust me and tell me where he is hiding? Monsieur Poirot, I swear to you that I have no idea of where Ralph is and that I have neither seen him nor heard from him either on the day of the murder or since. Bien, that is that. Now, I appeal to the others who sit round this table. If you know where Ralph Payton is hiding, speak out. Understand this? I mean to arrive at the truth. I mean to know. And I shall know in spite of you all. How do you mean, in spite of us all? Every one of you in this room is concealing something from me. It may be something unimportant, trivial, which is supposed to have no bearing on the case, but there it is. Each of you has something to hide. Come now. Am I right? I am also. I appeal to you all. Tell me the truth. Will no one speak? <sighs> C'est dommage. I wish you'd tell me what you really think of it all. <laughs> you have seen what I have seen. Should not our ideas be the same? I'm afraid you're laughing at me. I've no experience in matters of this kind, and I'm trying to keep a journal of the case. Are you, Doctor? You must let me have a look at it. Very well, then. The first thing is to get a clear history of what happened that evening, always bearing in mind that the person who speaks may be lying. So, first, Dr. Shepard leaves the house at ten minutes to nine. How do I know that? Because I told you so. And you might not be speaking the truth. But Parker confirms it, and we accept your statement. At nine o'clock, you run into a man just outside the park gates. How do I know that this is so? I told you so. Ah, you know that it is so. But how am I to know? So, I talk around the village, and the maid of Miss Gannett says she met your mysterious stranger inquiring for Fernley Park a few minutes before you did. And the barmaid at the Three Boars says he had a drink there, and he mentioned having just come over from the States. Did it strike you that he had an American accent? Come to think of it, yes, he had. So, we accept your stranger. And there is also this. 
which, you remember, I picked up in the summer house. Ah, oh, the little quill. And you know that feathers like this are used to sniff drugs. Hmm. It is a method used by drug addicts in the United States of America. So, you're suggesting that the stranger went to the summer house to meet somebody. But who was that somebody? Exactly the question. Now, another point. What did you think of the parlourmaid story? Does it take half an hour to dismiss a servant? You bewilder me. And there is still the mystery of the telephone call and the pushed-out chair. Do you really think the latter important? Or perhaps not. I will not press the point. Tell me instead, what were Ralph Breton's reasons for disappearing? I can only think that his nerve must have failed him. Yes, that is true, but... We must not lose sight of one thing. I know what you're going to say. Motive. Mm. Ralph Payton inherits a great fortune by his uncle's death. That is one motive. But do you realize there are three separate motives staring us in the face? Somebody stole the envelope containing evidence of the blackmailer's identity. Was that why Ackroyd was killed? And was Payton the blackmailer? And then... There is the fact that he was in some scrape which he feared might reach his uncle's ears. Well, put like that, the case does seem black against him. Does it? Three motives? <laughs> it is almost too much. I am inclined to believe that, after all, Ralph Payton is innocent. After that talk with Poirot, the affair seemed to me to enter on a different phase. Up till the Monday evening, I had played Watson to his homes. After then, our ways diverged, and Poirot was busy on his own account. But that challenge of his to the company round the table had its effect, as I was soon to discover. On Tuesday morning, I had a summons from Ackroyd's sister-in-law. I thought, Doctor, that you might explain it all to Monsieur Poirot, because it's so difficult for a foreigner to see our point of view. And you don't know what I had to contend with. Every slightest bill I ran up had to be gone over with Roger, as if he had a few miserly hundreds a year, instead of being one of the wealthiest men in these parts. And then I got these letters, abusive letters, threatening letters, and so I wanted to know how I stood... I expected that Roger would provide for me in his will, but I didn't know. And then, on Friday afternoon... Yes, yes, on Friday afternoon. Uh, everyone seemed to be out, so I went into Roger's study. There was nothing underhand about it. He'd left his keys in the lock of the top drawer of his desk. So you searched the desk. Did you find the will? As I got to the bottom drawer, the parlourmaid Bourne came in. Of course, I shut the drawer and called her attention to a few specks of dust on the surface, but I didn't like the way she looked. I never have liked that girl very much. Too well-educated, for one thing. And what happened next? Nothing. Uh, at least Roger came in, and I told him I'd come in to get punch. Bourne stayed behind, and I heard her asking Roger if she could speak to him for a minute. I went straight up to my room to lie down. Bourne may have made some extraordinary story out of it all... You, you will explain to Monsieur Poirot, won't you? But my curiosity about the parlourmaid had been awakened. She was in the hall, and I could see that she'd been crying. I'll get your coat, sir. 
How is it that you told us that Mr. Ackroyd sent for you when I now hear that it was you who asked to speak to him? I meant to leave in any case. Excuse me, sir. Is there any news of Captain Payton? None that I know of. He ought to come back. Does no one know where he is? Do you? I know nothing. But anyone who was a friend to him would tell him this. He ought to come back. I thought I had better report all this to Poirot. But he had a new bee in his bonnet. He was obsessed by the colour of Ralph Payton's boots. He had asked Caroline to find out for him, as the boot boy at the Three Boars had reported that they were black. It is a great pity. Ah, oh, well. Now, on the Friday morning before the murder, I believe that Miss Russell, the housekeeper, came to consult you. Is it indiscreet to ask what passed at the interview? Apart from the medical details, I mean. Not at all. We talked for a few minutes about poisons and the ease or difficulty of detecting them, and about drug-taking and drug-takers. With special reference to cocaine? How did you know? Oh, just a thought. Have you come to any conclusions about the case? None at all, except to wonder whether one of our conclusions is wrong or, or too hasty. And what is that? We've assumed that the blackmailer of Mrs. Ferrers is necessarily the murderer of Mr. Ackroyd. Mightn't we be mistaken? Very good, very good indeed. I wondered if that idea would come to you. But we must remember one point. The letter disappeared. Still, that may not necessarily mean that the murderer took it. When you first noticed the body... Parker may have abstracted the letter unnoticed by you. Parker? Yes, Parker. I wonder. It is in my mind to try a little experiment with Parker. How say you, my friend? Will you accompany me to Fernley? I believe you wanted to see me, Monsieur Poirot. Mademoiselle Flora, I have to confide in you a little secret... I am not yet satisfied of the innocence of Parker. I propose to make a little experiment with your assistance. I wish to reconstruct some of his actions on that night. Will you help me? Of course, Monsieur Poirot. Excellent. Ah, here he comes. Uh, my good Parker, you brought the tray and the decanter as I requested? Uh, good. Now, I wish you to aid me in a little experiment. Oh. I have placed a colleague on the terrace outside the study. I want to see if anyone there could have heard the voices of Miss Ackroyd and yourself. A reconstruction of the crime, sir? Exactly. Now then, you came from the outer hall. And um, where was Mademoiselle? Uh, here, just outside the study door. Quite right, sir, yes. I had just closed the door. Yes, miss, yes. Your hand was still on the handle as it is now. Yeah. Then play me the comedy. Oh, Parker, Mr. Ackroyd doesn't want to be disturbed again tonight. Is that right? Yes, miss, yes. But I fancy you use the word evening instead of tonight. Very good, miss. Shall I lock up as usual? Yes, please. And then I went back to my room. Admirably. Oh, um, by the way, Parker, are you sure there were two glasses on your tray that evening? Who was the second one for? I always bring two glasses, sir. Is there anything further? No, nothing. I thank you. 
And thank you too, Miss Ackroyd. That was most helpful. I'm glad you got what you wanted. What was the point of the question about the glasses? Oh, one must say something. That particular question did as well as any other. At any rate, I know now something I wanted to know. Monsieur Poirot. Mr. Raymond? I've just received a call from the police. A man has been detained at Liverpool. His name is Charles Kent, and he is believed to be the stranger who visited Fernley that night. Uh, they want you and Dr. Shepherd to go to Liverpool. Well, my dear doctor, is this the man? The height's the same, and as far as general appearance goes, it might well be the man in question. Look, what the hell is all this? I demand to know why I'm being detained here. What am I supposed to have done? It is the man. I recognise the voice. And where do you suppose you heard it before? On Friday evening last, outside the gates of Fernley Park. You asked me the way there. Do you admit it, Mr Kent? I admit nothing, and I'll say nothing until I know why you're holding me. Have you not read the papers in the last few days? Uh, you mean the murder, I suppose. You're surely not trying to pin that on me. You were there that night. And how do you know that? By this goose quill. It is yours, I think. You dropped it in the summer house that night. So I was there. Tell me this, though. According to the papers, the man was killed between 9.45 and 10 o'clock. Is that so? That is so. Then you've nothing to keep me here for. I was away from Fernley Park by 9.25. You can ask at a pub called the Dog and Whistle out on the Cranchester Road. I was there at a quarter to ten. They'll remember me. I had a brawl with the bartender. Inquiries will be made. If you're telling the truth, you won't have anything to complain about. What were you doing at Fernley Park anyway? I went there to meet someone. Who? That's none of your business. Your name is Charles Kent. Where were you born? That's none of your business either, but I'm a British citizen, if that's what you want to know. Yes, I think you are. I fancy you were born in Kent. And now, since we can do no more until the good inspector has made his inquiries, we may as well return to King's Abbot. Well, Kent's alibi's right enough. Confirmed by the man at the bar and three other witnesses. Are you going to release him, Inspector? Then see what else we can do. If I were you, I should not release him yet. Why not? He can't have anything to do with the murder. We know Ackroyd was alive at a quarter to ten. You admit that, don't you? I admit nothing that is not proved. But we've got Miss Ackroyd's evidence. I do not always believe what a charming young lady tells me. Parker saw her coming out of the room. No. That is just what he did not see. That was the point of my little experiment the other day. You remember, Doctor? Oh, uh, uh... Parker saw her outside the door with her hand on the handle. He did not see her come out of the door. But where else could she have been? Perhaps on the stairs. But those stairs lead only to Mr. Ackroyd's bedroom. Precisely. What would she have been doing in her uncle's bedroom? And why would she lie about it? That is just the question we should be asking ourselves. You mean the money? You're not suggesting it was Miss Ackroyd who took that 40 pounds. Life was not easy for that mother and daughter. Roger Ackroyd was a peculiar man over money matters. I don't believe it. It's not credible. There's only one thing for it. We must tackle that young lady right away. Flora was sitting in the billiard room with Major Blunt. To my consternation, she insisted on his staying there, though she must have had some idea of what was coming. Flora, I, I simply can't believe it. Oh, no, Hector. Monsieur Poirot is right. I took that money. I am a thief. A common, vulgar little thief. 
I'm glad it's come out. It's been a nightmare these last few days, lying, cheating, running up bills, promising to pay. Oh, Flora, surely you could have... There was nothing I could have done. At any rate, I'm real now. I'm not pretending to be the kind of girl you like, you know, young and innocent and simple. I don't care if you never want to see me again. If I had thought that for one moment that speaking the truth would have made things better for Ralph... Ralph! Always Ralph. You don't understand. You never will. I never did see my uncle that evening after he left the dinner table. As to money, you can take what steps you please. Nothing could be worse than it is now. So, that's that. Inspector, Miss Aykroyd never touched that money. Roger gave it to me for a very particular purpose. She is lying to protect Ralph. I'm prepared to go into the witness box and swear that I had the money. Major Plant, I am not in the least deceived by your little fantasy. But it is very good what you have done there. I am not in the least concerned about your opinion of me, monsieur. Ah, but you must listen to me. The other day I spoke of concealments. What you have been seeking to conceal from the world is your love for Mademoiselle Flora. But take my advice. Do not conceal it from her. What do you mean by that? You think that she loves Ralph Breton, but that is not so. She is loyal, and she is bound by honor to stick to him. But her heart was not in the idea of marriage. Do you really think... If you doubt me, ask her yourself. She went into the garden, I think. I've been every kind of fool. You're a good fellow, Poirot. Thank you. <laughs> Not every kind of fool. Only a fool in love. This alters everything. All those alibis are worthless. 9.30, that's the time we've got to hang on to now. You were quite right about not releasing that man, Kent. He could certainly have done the murder and got to the dog and whistle if he ran. But he couldn't have made the telephone call. Why do we always come up against that telephone call? Why, indeed. It is curious. I mustn't waste any more time. I must find out precisely what everyone was doing from 9.30. <laughs> the good inspector is going to have a busy time. Now, my dear doctor, there is something I want you to do. I want you to send a note to Miss Russell and make a time for her to come to your surgery. Whatever for? Because I want to talk to her without the whole village knowing. And if she comes to your surgery, no one will suspect, least of all the good lady herself. So long as I am allowed to be present. Oh, but naturally, <laughs> your own surgery. And now, I have a little surprise for you. Read this. The police have for some days been seeking for Captain Ralph Payton, the nephew of Mr. Ackroyd of Fernley Park, whose death occurred under such tragic circumstances last Friday. Captain Payton has been found at Liverpool, where he was on the point of embarking for America. But it's not true. He's not in Liverpool. No, he has not been found at Liverpool. I managed to persuade the inspector to send this to the press for tomorrow's papers. I assured him that very interesting results would follow. That beats me what you expect to get out of that. Uh -huh. You should employ your little grey cells. And now, if you would be good enough to do me that little favour? Oh, yes, the message for Miss Russell. You know, I'm very curious to know what you're up to. Miss Russell... 
Charles Kent has been arrested at Liverpool. Well, what of it? I thought you might be interested, that is all. Why should I be? Who is this Charles Kent? He is a man, mademoiselle, who was seen at Fernley on the night of the murder. We want to know what he was doing there, who it was he went to meet. He didn't kill Ackroyd. He, he never went near the study. He didn't do it. You must believe me. I do believe you. But I had to make you speak. Is what you said true? That he is suspected of the crime? Yes. And you alone can save him by telling the truth. He came to see me. I went out to meet him. In the summer house. How do you know? It is the business of Hercule Poirot to know things. You went out to meet him at ten minutes past nine. What did you say to each other? It's difficult, you see. Mademoiselle, what you tell us need not go beyond these four walls. Charles Kent is your son, is he not? Good Lord. No one's ever known. It, it was so long ago. In Kent. I was not married. I got work. I managed to pay for his board and lodging. I never told him that I was his mother, but he, he turned out badly. He drank, and, and then he took to drugs. I scraped together the money for his passage to Canada. He, he was there for two years, and then somehow or other he found out that I was his mother, and he wrote asking for money. Finally, I heard from him. Back in this country again, he... He was coming to see me at Fernley. So you arranged to see him in the summer house? I dared not let him come up to the house. I, I'd brought with me all the money I had and I gave it to him. But he was very rough and, and abusive. What time did he leave? Uh, it must have been between 20 and 29 minutes past nine. It was not yet half past when I got back to the house. Which way did he go? By the way he came. The path to the lodge gates. Hmm. I think that is all. The paragraph inspired by Poirot duly appeared in our daily paper the next day. I was in the dark as to its purpose, but its effect on Caroline was immense. I knew he'd try to get away to America. That's what Crippin did. Without much success. Poor boy, now they've caught him. Well, there's one person who's reacted pretty quickly. And who is that? Flora Ackroyd. She's engaged to Hector Blunt. But Mr Poirot is here. He's sure to know all about it. Good day, Doctor. Um, I have a little commission for you, my friend. Don't worry, I'll go. I want to arrange a little conference this evening at my house. You will attend, will you not? Of course. I also need all those in the house. That is to say, Mrs. Ackroyd, Mademoiselle Flora, Major Plant, Mr. Raymond. You will ask them, yes? With pleasure. The maid from Fernley's here, Ursula Bourne. She's in a terrible way, poor thing. She says she must see Mr. Poirot at once. Doctor, Monsieur Poirot. Miss Bourne? No. No, that is not quite right. It is not Miss Bourne, is it, my child? But Mrs. Ralph Payton. Well, oh, there, there, my dear. It'll be all right. You'll see. Everything will be all right. This is very weak and silly of me. No, 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 my child. We can all realise the strain of this last week. It must have been a terrible ordeal. I saw this in the paper this morning. It says that Ralph has been arrested, so I need not pretend any longer. All the same, I think you will do well to make a clean breast of things. So you will tell me the whole story, will you not? If I am to save your husband... 
I must know all there is to know. What I want to know is why this child was masquerading as a parlour maid. For a living. My family is Irish. Impoverished gentlefolk, I suppose you might call them. I didn't want to become a governess, so I decided I would take on a job as parlour maid. My sister wrote me a reference, and I was taken on at Fernley Hall. I enjoyed the work, and I had plenty of time to myself. I'd met Ralph Payton, and we fell in love. I didn't like the idea of a secret marriage, but he told me his uncle would never hear of his marrying a penniless girl. So no one knew about it. No one? Not a soul. Ralph had always had debts. He's not good with money, and his troubles got worse and worse. But Mr. Ackroyd refused to lift a finger to help him. And then one day, I knew nothing of this, of course. Mr. Ackroyd told Ralph that it was the desire of his heart that Ralph should marry Flora, and that if Ralph did so, he would clear his debts. And and Ralph accepted. I mean, God knows how he thought he was going to get out of it all. They both stipulated that the whole thing should be kept secret, but without any warning, Mr. Ackroyd decided to announce the engagement. It was like a bombshell. I was desperate. Ralph came down from town, and we met in a wood on the estate. He still wanted me to keep our marriage secret, but I told him I was going straight to Mr. Ackroyd. We had a a terrible row and and parted. You poor soul. So I went to Mr. Ackroyd, and, and he was very angry and very bitter, mainly against Ralph, but but also against me because he was convinced that I had deliberately set out to trap Ralph. That evening I met Ralph again in the little summer house. He accused me of ruining his relationship with his foster father. I told him he was a coward and a cheat. And we parted. Uh, And then I heard that Mr. Ackroyd had been murdered. And since that night I have neither seen nor heard from Ralph. Mademoiselle... What time was it when you parted from Ralph Peton in the summer house? This is something I've, I've gone over and over again in my mind. I reached the summer house at 27 minutes to 10. Ralph was waiting for me. I was with him for a few minutes. No longer. It, it was quarter to 10 when I got back to the house. Who left the summer house first? I did. Leaving Ralph Peton there? Yes. But you don't think... It is of no importance what I think. Where did you go? Up to my room. And stayed there until... Uh, about, about ten o'clock. Is there anyone who can prove that? Prove that I was in my room? But surely no one... Thinks that it was you who went up by the window and stabbed Mr. Ackroyd as he sat in his chair? Yes. They might think just that. Oh, God! Don't worry, <laughs> my dear. Mr. Poirot doesn't think that, really. As for that husband of yours, I don't think much of him. Running away and leaving you to face the music. This evening I shall want Madame to attend my little reunion. Nine o'clock at my house. It is most necessary that she should be there. Mrs. Ackroyd, Miss Flora Ackroyd, Major Blunt, Mr. Geoffrey Raymond, Mrs. Ralph Payton, John Parker... Elizabeth Russell. All present and correct. Every one of you had the opportunity to kill Mr. Ackroyd. I I don't like it. I don't like it. I would much prefer to go home. You cannot go home, madame, until you have heard what I have to say. I will start at the beginning. When Miss Ackroyd asked me to investigate the case, I went to Fernley Park with Dr. Shepherd. My eye was caught by a little summer house, and I searched it carefully. 
There I found two things, a scrap of starched cambric and an empty goose quill. The scrap of cambric immediately suggested a maid's apron, and I noticed from Inspector Raglan's list that one of the maids, Ursula Boone, had no real alibi. The quill suggested a taker of drugs, and Dr. Shepard had encountered a stranger with an American accent. Was this the man who Ursula Boone had met in the summer house? But then I began to suspect that there had been two meetings in the summer house that night, and I discovered that Dr. Shepard's mysterious stranger had in fact come to Fernley to meet Miss Russell, the housekeeper. Who then did Ursula Boone come to meet? I found this ring, a wedding ring with From R engraved inside it. So, it was Ralph Patton to whom she was secretly married. And this revealed another unexpected point. It could not have been Ralph Patton who was with Mr. Ackroyd in the study at 9.30. So, we come now to the most interesting part of the crime. Who was in the room with Mr. Ackroyd at 9.30? And then I posed my cleverest, my most audacious question. Was anyone with him? But I distinctly heard his voice. So did Major Blunt. Just a moment. From the beginning of the case, I have been struck by one thing the nature of the words which you overheard, Mr. Raymond. It has been amazing to me that no one has seen anything odd about them. The calls on my purse have been so frequent of late that I fear it is impossible for me to accede to your request. Now, would any man use such a phrase in talking to another? Now, if he had been dictating a letter... You mean he was reading a letter aloud? Even so, he must have been reading to someone. Ah, you are forgetting one thing. The stranger who called at the house the preceding Wednesday. The man from the dictaphone company. A dictaphone? Is that what you think? I inquired of the company. Mr. Ackroyd did purchase a dictaphone. Why he concealed the matter from you, I do not know. Mm. But surely this still leaves the basic position unchanged. Mr. Ackroyd was alive at 9.30, since he was speaking into the dictaphone. It seems clear that this Charles Kent person was, in fact, off the premises by then. As to Ralph Payton, uh, if only he would come forward... That is your advice, yes? That he should come forward? Certainly. If you know where he is. I do know where he is. He is there, in the doorway. Oh, Ralph! Do you remember when I accused you all of concealing something from me? Four of you gave up your secrets. But Dr. Shepard did not give up his. He met Ralph Peton on the way home from the scene of the crime. I did. I told him that suspicion was bound to fall on him, or if not on him, on the girl he loved. I realised that the only thing I could do was to go into hiding. And Dr. Shepard said he, he thought he could find somewhere for me. And so he did. It took me some time to work out where. A hotel? No. Lodgings? Even more emphatically, no. And then I saw. 
a home for the mentally unfit. <laughs> I invent a nephew with mental trouble. I consult Mademoiselle Shepard as to suitable homes. And in a very little time, I find Captain Peyton. Dr. Shepard has been very loyal, but I now see that I should have come forward and faced the music. But you see, in that home, I, I knew nothing of what was going on. What did happen that night? You know it already. I, I left the summer house at about 9.45 and tramped about the lanes, trying to make up my mind as to what to do next. I'm bound to admit that I'm not the shadow of an alibi, but I swear to you, I never went into that study. No alibi. I believe you, of course, but it's a bad business. It makes things very simple, though. Very simple indeed. What do you mean? Just this. To save Captain Payton, the real criminal must confess. I did not invite Inspector Raglan tonight for a very special reason. I did not want to tell him all that I knew. At least I did not want to tell him tonight. I know the murderer is in this room now. It is to the murderer I speak. Tomorrow, the truth goes to Inspector Ragnar. You understand? Monsieur and Madame, this reunion of mine is at an end. Stay a moment, Doctor. I would like to talk to you. Certainly. Well, my friend, and what do you think of it all? I don't know what to think. Why not go straight to Inspector Raglan with the truth, instead of giving the murderer a chance to escape? The murderer cannot escape. There is only one way out, and that way does not lead to freedom. You really believe that one of those people here tonight committed the murder? Yes, my friend. Which one? Let me share my thoughts with you, Doctor. I will take you the way that I have travelled myself, and you will see that all the facts lead indisputably to one person. Let us start with the telephone call. I satisfied myself that the call could not have been sent by anyone in the house, and therefore I concluded that it must have been sent by an accomplice. I was not pleased by that deduction, but uh, let it stand for the minute. I next examined the motive for the call. Its only result was that the murder was discovered that night instead of the following morning. You agree with that? Yes. Mr. Ackroyd had given orders that he was not to be disturbed, so nobody would have been likely to go into the study. Mm, but what was the advantage of that? The only idea I could get hold of was that the murderer, knowing that the crime had to be discovered at a certain time, could make sure of being present when the door was broken in. And now we come to the second fact. The chair pulled out from the wall. Inspector Ragland didn't seem to place much importance on that. Picture the scene for yourself. The chair stood in a direct line between the door and the window. 
the window. But I soon abandoned that supposition because the chair concealed very little. But what it did conceal was a little table with magazines on it. Supposing that there had been something on that table not intended to be seen. Something placed there by the murderer. But what could that have been? Now, we know that a dictaphone was supplied to Mr. Ackroyd. Why was no dictaphone found? I never thought of that. So, it was the dictaphone. But a dictaphone cannot be slipped casually into the pocket. There must have been a receptacle capable of holding it. So, the figure of the murderer is taking shape. A person who was on the scene of the crime straight away, but who might not have been if the crime had been discovered the following morning. A person carrying a receptacle into which the dictaphone might be fitted. But why remove the dictaphone? What was the point? Ah, oh, you are like Mr. Raymond. You take it for granted that what was heard at 9.30 was Mr. Ackroyd speaking into a dictaphone. But consider a minute. You dictate into it, and at some later time, a typist turns it on, and the voice speaks again. You mean... Yes. At 9.30, Mr. Ackroyd was already dead. It was the dictaphone speaking, not the man. And the murderer switched it on. Or had attached to it some mechanical device to set it off at a particular time. Now we come to the footprints on the window ledge. Two conclusions were open to me. They might really have been made by Ralph Payton, or they were made by somebody deliberately trying to throw suspicion onto him. Now, one pair of Payton's shoes had been obtained from the three balls by the police, and I found out that he had... Two pairs. If my theory was correct, the murderer must have been wearing the other pair. But if that was so, then Peto must have had some other kind of footwear. That was why I asked your sister to find out about Peton's boots. Oh, but it was the colour. Ah, oh, no, 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 no. That was to obscure my reason for asking. And the first question I asked Peton when I found him was what he was wearing on his feet that night. And he replied at once that he had worn boots. Now, there is one further point. The murderer must have had the opportunity to take the dagger from the silver table. But anyone might have done so. No, yeah, possibly. But let us look at the figure we are building up. A person who was at the three balls earlier that day who could have taken Peyton's shoes... A person who knew Ackroyd well enough to know about the dictaphone. A person who had the opportunity to take the dagger. A person who had the study to himself for a few minutes after the crime was discovered. And who had with him a receptacle for hiding the dictaphone, such as a black bag. In fact, Yourself, my dear doctor. <laughs> You're mad. No, I am not mad. What on earth had I to gain by murdering Ackroyd? Safety. It was you who blackmailed Mrs. Ferrars, 
who could have had a better knowledge of what killed her husband than the doctor attending him? When you spoke to me that first day in the garden, you mentioned a legacy. But that was your way of accounting for the £20,000 you exacted from Mrs. Ferrars. You lost most of it in speculation. And then you put the screw on too hard. And Mrs. Ferrars took a way out that you had not expected. If Mr. Ackroyd had learned the truth, he would have had no mercy on you. You were ruined forever. And the telephone call? You can explain that, I suppose. I will confess to you that it was actually my greatest stumbling block when I found that a call had actually been put through to you from King's Abbott Station. And then, when I came to see your sister that morning you were over at Marby, I inquired what patients you had had on that fatal Friday. Among your patients that morning was the steward of an American liner, the Orion. Who more suitable than he to be leaving for Liverpool that evening? But on what pretext did you get him to phone through to you from King's Abbott Station? I sent a wireless message to the steward of the Orion asking him a certain question. This is his reply. Dr. Shepard asked me to leave a note at a patient's house. I was to ring him up from the station with the reply. The reply was, no answer. <laughs> it was a clever idea. The call was genuine. Your sister saw you take it. But there was only one man's word as to what was actually said. Your own. And so what happens now? Remember what I said. The truth goes to Inspector Raglan in the morning. But for the sake of your good sister, I am willing to give you the chance of another way out. There might be, for instance, an overdose of a sleeping draught. You comprehend me? Captain Ralph Petton must be cleared. I suggest you finish that journal of yours. A strange end to my story. I meant it to be published as the history of one of Poirot's failures. Odd how things pan out. My greatest fear all through has been Caroline. I fancied she might guess. Well, she will never know the truth. There is, as Poirot said, one way out. What shall it be? Veronal? It would be a kind of poetic justice. Not that I take any responsibility for Mrs. Ferrer's death. It was the direct consequence of her own actions. I feel no pity for her. I have no pity for myself either. But I wish Hercule Poirot had never retired from work and come here to grow vegetable marrows. In... The Murder of Roger Ackroyd by Agatha Christie, dramatised for radio by Michael Bakewell, 
Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat and Dr. Shepard by John Woodvine. Roger Ackroyd, Lawrence Payne, Raymond, Peter Gilmore, Caroline, Diana Olson, Miss Russell, Eva Stewart, Flora, Zila Clark, Mrs. Cecil Ackroyd, Joan Matheson, Ursula Bourne, Karen Archer, Hector Blunt, David Goodland. Inspector Raglan, Richard Tate, Inspector Davis, Simon Cuff, Ralph Payton, Paul Sir, Kent, Peter Craze, Hammond, Alan Dudley, and Parker the Butler was played by Derek Guiler. The play was directed by Enid Williams. been a Nostalgic Mystery Radio presentation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app. Also, there's a Nostalgic Mystery Radio YouTube page for your perusal to subscribe to. You can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day or evening. And again, thank you for listening.